Hey everybody, welcome to the People People podcast with me, Barry Hoffman. Each week I'll be sitting down and talking to some of the biggest names in the people profession. This podcast is sponsored by Strategic Dimensions. No one can see what you look like. It's it's absolutely fine. We can tell them anything. You look like Tom Cruise. I have a face for radio. (laughs) <laughs> thank you so much for agreeing to do the to do the podcast um it was really interesting to chat to you over dinner the other night so i thought it'd be great to get you on and just talk about your career and how you got to where you've got to and and what you do so just start by telling everyone who you are and who you work for it'd be great well, it's lovely to be here barry thank you for thank you i enjoyed our chat too so um so my name is rob bray i am currently the people director for nando's in the uk and ireland um and how did i get here well that's a good question probably a healthy dose of luck and timing as is often the case for many people but um i have over the years worked primarily in consumer businesses so i worked for tesco for seven eight years in yep. lots of different areas in the, the online business and telecoms and all that good stuff in the group team. Um, and before that, I used to be a headhunter. So before um, my, well, actually going back now, sorry, 15 years doing HR roles across both Nando's and Tesco. Prior to mm. that, I was in search, um, uh, doing aircraft structured finance of all things. So wow. a very, very different world. Um, did, you yeah, enjoy, so did you enjoy search? I enjoyed lots of it. Um, but I think I was in my sort of early mid twenties at the time. And, um, frankly, I probably didn't know what I was talking about. And I was interviewing very senior people in very complicated parts of, uh, it was a sort of securitization era. And they were talking to me about different complex debt structures they were using to finance aircraft. And mm. I really didn't, didn't, didn't know. So I think there was lots of it that I enjoyed, but the, my friends and such won't like me saying this, but there are typically only two or three outcomes to any 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 recruitment process. Either the client's unhappy, the candidate rejects, or occasionally the candidate accepts the offer. And I think when I was in that loop, I, I didn't see a long-term future for myself in it. Um, yeah. So um, I enjoyed lots. I learned a lot about business. I met some fantastic people. I've got lots of good friends who I met over those sort of four or five years that I did it. Um, but I wasn't a career recruiter, I don't think. Um, but a lot of the skills have come with me. Has it coloured your view of recruiters and search partners whenever you go looking for a job or when you're hiring people? It's <laughs> a good question. Uh, interesting question. I, um, uh, probably initially, because I felt that I knew really what they were up to. Um, mm. And so initially, I was probably a bit of a sceptic. That has changed as I've, um, I'd say, matured or softened over the years. Um I think that recruitment and search businesses play a fantastic and very important role in any business. Mm. Um, but it really comes down to what is such a hackneyed expression, but it comes down to who you work with. Mm. And I'm much less interested with a name above the door than I am the partner or the, the, the head on I'm working with. Um, and over the years have actually sort of broadly gravitated towards individuals that I know and trust um, because that goes a long way. And if someone has solid, solid thinking about how to do proper research and understand markets and take a brief they don't need the big name above the door in order to 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 get those candidates i don't think yeah i think that sounds that sounds right i think you you build relationships over time and 
for, for me anyway, I, I think that the best search partners really get under the skin of who you are as a person and they mm. get to know your motivation, your strengths and your weaknesses and all that kind of stuff and really match you to a role in a way yeah. that I, I don't think you can do if you're just kind of scraping names off a of LinkedIn or something. I don't, I'm not sure that really works. No, I, th- I, th- I think that's right. And, and, you know, I work in a very people first values and cultural, strong cultural business at the moment. And technical yeah. competence is, you know, probably, I probably, again, shouldn't say this out loud, but it's probably like 30 to 40% of the requirement, the, the ability to lead within a very uh, relationship-based, uh, purpose-orientated business is, is paramount. Um, and you don't get that from a CV. Yeah. You get that from understanding the client and you get that from no. understanding the individual themselves. Well, you can train a lot of the technical stuff, but the, the kind of inherent, innate sort of characteristics that people have, they're, they're harder mm. to train, I think, if, if yeah. not impossible. Well, you know what they say, you can't, you can't put in what God left out. <laughs> I like that one. I might have to steal mm. that one from you at some point. Yeah, like, yeah, it's, it, it's a goodie. You're welcome. Yeah. I stole it from someone else. The People People podcast is sponsored by Strategic Dimensions. Yeah. Tell me a bit about Tesco because it's such a huge brand and a huge part of loads of people's lives, especially since Tesco kind of branched out into doing all sorts of different things. You can get loads of points and sort of run your whole life through Tesco. And at one point there was in the press a statistic about one mm. pound in every mm. seven spent in the UK was with Tesco or something like that. I don't know. What was it like to um, work so there? Probably, probably a couple of different eras, actually, while I was there. So I was there for, uh, I don't know, so let's try and remember when it was, probably late 2000s through to, um, you know, 2016, I think it was. Um, the business I joined was very, very ambitious, looking at opportunities, taking the brand into, and, and actually a lot of the areas I worked in were these kind of fledgling um, but actually large businesses, but sort of um, almost ancillary mm. services within the Tesco uh, within the Tesco orbit. So the Tesco Mobile, which is a very successful um, joint venture with O2. I was there when we acquired Tesco Bank from uh, what was the joint venture with RBS, uh, you know, a number of these different businesses. So the business I knew, certainly for the first mm. period, was one of um, sort of ambition, growth and determination and confidence. Um, and with that came a sort of leadership style of, um, you know, get stuff done, move forward. The brand will carry us through. We can move into different territories and, and make, you know, do good things for customers. Um, I think I also, yeah. so that, that was great. And from a personal development perspective, which, which I think is, is maybe relevant for this discussion, it meant a huge amount of opportunity. So the business was very good at supporting, and I had a number of uh, leaders who I worked with at the time who were very, very comfortable um, putting people into very stretching development opportunities that you don't get. I mean, I, you know, I, I speak to many other people. It was a particular time at Tesco where if you backed and you had the support, you could literally be put into anything, and they'd say, "Well, we'll just help you make it a success." And that, for someone early on yeah. in their career, or you know, sort of, yeah, yeah earlier on was just incredible. You know, they took a, in me, a headhunter who knew absolutely square root of nothing and chucked me into an HR generalist job after nine months mm. um, and supported me to make that a success. So I think also I was there during the period of the, um, uh, I don't know what the right term is, I think, I guess, accounting scandal. And um, that was a very different time. So the business became, to yeah. my mind, quite yeah. inward-looking. Confidence was down 
performance was down. Um, the press was very much again Tesco and the one pound and yeah. seven. I mean, I, me- I remember that stat actually. I remember it. I think it was while I was there. The one one in seven was the was the thing, and it, and the sort of the the, the feel mm. of the business changed quite a lot. Um, and we went through a difficult period of um, you know a lot of board change, decision making slowed right down until. Dave Lewis came in and, and sort of reset the business. Um, mm-hmm. And that was when I was, I was leaving to move on to Nando's. But um, for me, looking back on it, there were some difficult times undoubtedly, but I learned a huge amount about leadership and the ability to step into different, you know, ambiguity and stepping into different environments. And, and what I love about retail, um, and I think we might have talked about this a little bit the other, the other night, Barry, but is the determination and speed with which things happen. Like, you know, a decision can be made on a Friday afternoon and by Monday the team's mobilized and you're off to the races mm-hmm. and you're doing something. And I think whilst it's not always sometimes the right thing to be doing in business, we do sometimes slow ourselves down with navel gazing sometimes. And I, and I think for those who have a lot of, sort of red energy or, or, or that, it's, it's a good environment to be in because yeah. things happen and they happen quickly. So then on to Nando's. Now, I've, before we start talking about Nando's, I have a question. So I, I had a guy that worked for me. I'm going to name check him because his name is, is Vinny Lally. And he was a great HR guy. Really, really good. And he spent, I would say, uh, four days out of five at lunch in Nando's. And uh, I, I have not been to Nando's, as I confessed the other night. Um, however, he, he maintains that there's some kind of black card that you can get, a bit like the, the legendary black American Express or the mm. Shareways thing, whatever, that allows you to get some kind of super special VIP treatment, free Nando's for life or something. Now, is yeah. this true or is this an urban myth? This is, um, well, let me say two things about it. One is it doesn't exist. And right. if you have to ask for it, it definitely doesn't exist. Okay, fine. Well, that's cleared that up. That's a very important point. Thank you. Yeah. So tell, tell me, how did how did you get the job at Nando's? And tell me a bit about the story of Nando's. Because I say, I'm, I, I'm not that familiar with it, other than having seen the shops on the high street. Okay, I um, will take you for a meal there. Don't worry. We're, we're not letting you off the hook on that one. <laughs> Great. Um, how did I get there? Um so I, the last two years at Tesco, I was working in an area of the business where we'd been acquiring different leisure and hospitality companies. So it was almost set up a little bit like a private equity shop inside Tesco where we were mm. buying, uh, we bought a couple of different brands, Giraffe. We did a joint venture with a coffee business called Harrison Hall, which is now owned by Nero. We did uh, a bakery business called Euphorium, which was scaled out across I don't know, 100, 150 of the different retail outlets. And so it was a, an attempt to bring a very different flavor, a slightly more sort of artisanal flavor into into the big supermarkets, as well as create a bit more of a leisure destination. So I was doing that across, we had six if not seven different brands um, which were various different stages of startup scale you know whatever was going on um and i got approached and uh, nando's is uh, to my mind one of the strongest uh hospitality or restaurant brands in certainly in the uk um certainly most loved by its customers and it was a great opportunity and um i also was looking for something a little bit deeper at that stage so working in a very large i think at that point tesco had 12 odd thousand people in the in in the office it was a very large uh, multinational mm. um 
I was very attracted to the purpose and values uh, around Nando's. And it is a family-owned business. And so um, uh, that sort of sense of ownership and custo- being a custodian for future generations was very appealing. Um, and it's, it's borne out. What's the purpose for the uninitiated? What's the purpose then? What's, what does um, Nando's have at its, its kind of core purpose and values? So it's very much around um, so many different values of pride, passion, courage, integrity, and most importantly, family. Those mm. would be the values. Mm. Um, and family looms very, very large at being a privately owned family business and has been since, well, since day dot in 1987 in South Africa. Um, and the same families are involved and uh, own the business. Um, so family looms large, but actually the purpose of the organization is to be very much a positive so planet and society positive mm. so in terms of um and language we'll, we'll know and i'm sure no doubt will come on to because it's it's something very important for all of us is around um carbon emissions and carbon footprint and how can you do that specifically in a business that um uses or, or raises 55 million chickens a year in the uk mm. so you know the, the carbon footprint of that is, is something to consider and also a huge employer of young people so nando's in the uk and ireland would would employ with headcount head across the business is about 21 22,000, mm. and we would hire about fourteen thousand people a year typically young typically first jobs so they're um yeah, the, a third would have never worked before and a third would be first time working in restaurants. So yeah. two thirds of the workforce have never worked in restaurants before. And so a lot of what, going back to your, sorry, your previous question is why, why did I go there is, is I've done a lot of work with youth and the government and trying to find, you know, good, make good quality jobs and help people from disadvantaged backgrounds get into work. Mm. And that is exactly where Nando's plays because our restaurants are, we've got 500 all over the UK and Ireland and they are, they overlap hugely with areas of social deprivation as well. Um, And so um, it's good. It it gives you an opportunity to create good quality jobs and good working environments for people. And do you, do you see any trends with, so I I mean, like everybody, I read a load of stuff about various gens, whether it's Gen Z or Gen Mm. X or Gen whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I I sort of slowly come into the conclusion that you can't really generalise about anybody actually because they're all they're all individuals. But do you see any trends? Do you, can you make any generalisations about the people, the, the young folk that you hire in, in particular? Well, we made a very conscious decision the decision recently to to call them young adults rather than mm. than young people um, because actually they are in in the vast majority of cases. I think. If I talk very specifically about Nando's and what we saw pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, and, and, and I think hospitality has been right at the sharp edge of Brexit um, and the challenges around the labour market and also the shortage of labour within the UK post-pandemic. The changes are that previously we had a older workforce, so they would typically be, I don't know, 23 to 25. I think 23 was our average age. That age has dropped, so it's now sub twenty, right. uh, you know, probably on twenty, maybe. Um, and people are not really ready for work in the same way. So we would be, you know, the managers in our restaurants would have to go right back to this is how you clean, clean a table. Mm-hmm. This is you've got to turn up to work with a clean shirt on. You've got to, you know, whatever the thing. That, so what 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 we would probably think is relatively basic. Mm. Um, that was not the case pre-pandemic mm. because. 
uh, a percentage of our workforce were those who've traveled from across the European Union and they would have either studied or had a few jobs beforehand. So they were, they were a couple of steps beyond on that journey. Yeah. Um, however, it's not all doom and gloom, Barry. That's, mm. that's the reality is that this has opened up fantastic, different, vibrant, energetic, passionate people um, that beforehand we weren't necessarily seeing as much in our restaurants. And so whilst it will take time for the equilibrium to be found, I actually think this is a great thing for for many sectors, not just hospitality, but it, it's, it's, you know, I know the same conversations. I talk to friends in different adjacent sectors, bit leisure or retail or whatever, but they're seeing the same trends. Mm. Um, and those are our managers of the future. They're the leaders of the future. So you give them a good environment. The, the fundamentals remain the same, which is create a good environment with a strong culture and leaders who care about them and, and, and nurture them, and help them grow. You do that. That's no different from what it was pre-pandemic. It's the mm. same issues, mm. um, um, just with a slightly different context. And if you if you can do that, then you 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 build people who will be the lifeblood of the business in you know for the next five ten years. Mm. Strikes me that the press in the UK is very negative. Um, I, I don't know if it's the same in other countries, but it paints a very negative picture about the the economy, the environment, the, the you know the young people who are working and going into the workplace it, it doesn't seem very um doesn't seem very helpful to me um but what you've described is a, is a much more positive view uh, and encouraging actually yeah and i think businesses businesses need to adjust we've had to adjust that's the reality mm. is we've had to adjust and and yes it has put some additional i guess strain onto the management teams in our restaurants but ultimately um I don't want to go down a political route, but the, the likelihood of our, um, well, the, the impacts of Brexit being reversed in the short term are, are low. So therefore, mm. you know, businesses need to adjust and, and deal with the realities that face them. And, and I think what's been particularly challenging is we've all had a lot of uh, adjustments to make over the last three to four years. And, and I think mm. that's probably as much, it's an amplification of all of that that's caused, um, made it such an acute challenge. But yeah. fast forward two years, I don't think we'll be talking about it. You know, at this stage, I look back on the pre the pre pandemic era and think, my God, that was easy, right? That was totally <laughs> a benign work. You know, it was it was easy in comparison. Strategic dimensions, the unrivaled HR network. What would you say is the hardest bit of your job right now? Hardest bit of the job right now. Um, restaurant businesses need the right number of people. In order to be able to, and it's it's very basic. Mm. Actually, I'll be quite reductive about it. The biggest challenge is making sure our restaurants are fully resourced, both at the um, hourly and the management level. Um, because if you can't do that, you can't run fourteen mm. great shifts, and if you can't run fourteen great shifts, you don't make any money to run the business. So, mm. ac across a week, so at one level, that is an ongoing. I refuse to use the term war for talent, but it is it is um, it is sort of that on steroids, mm. actually, uh, and remains one of the primary challenges. Mm. I think I'd be interested in your view on this one, actually, but I think there's a fair amount of sort of almost punch drunkness after um, the pandemic, Brexit, Ukraine, inflation. Um, so there is a huge organizational challenge with keeping motivation and inspiration high um, and almost like getting people yeah. to go again and go again. And, and I don't know. I mean, what what are you, you have you heard that from other people? I know you speak to a lot of people who do our types of jobs. So,
you know, what is the future of work? Because this ties all the way back to our education. Um, what are people, you know, my son's doing end of end of year exams at the moment, and he's learning stuff by rote. Do you need to learn things by rote when you've got a, a you know, a, a Siri or an Alexa that has all the answers, you know, in, all around you? Um, ironically, I say the word and then Siri turns on and all my phones around me. So it's now listening. Um, Siri, I'm sorry, I'm not being mean to you. Um, is, is, you know, that, that's, that's kind of an interesting dilemma. What are the, the, the uniquely human skills that we need in a world with generative AI that can already create movies and songs and write presentations and, a lot of what we would have thought was work will now be in Office 365 or whatever, or any other said branded product, you know? Um, but it, it, even if you go back, though, before the generative AI uh, phenomenon that we've had over the last couple of months, and you go back to thinking about um, typists mm. being... Um, you know, eradicated due to the introduction of word processing and computers and so on. It's, it's happened a lot over over time. A technology comes in and it, it makes the job redundant. It doesn't matter how far back you go. People still say the things that they say today about what they would like to see in their in their employees. That kind mm. of initiative, creativity, uh, leadership, personal leadership, all of those sorts of things. And do we teach those at school? It doesn't look like it to me. We're, we're teaching... Um, well, my my um, my son was raging about the quadratic equation. I don't know if you've seen the clip from Parliament. The the the, the girl who was in the the House of Commons who gave a speech about the quadratic equation. I'm not know. She would never never use. It's very very good clip uh, on on YouTube. Uh, it's it's excellent, and it just shows that kids aren't necessarily being taught what they need to know whatever employers seem to want i'm not sure that we're teaching it to our children at an early age i completely agree with that and you know having spent over a decade doing pre-employment sort of bridge programs for people coming into different workplaces to get them job ready mm. absolutely agree with that you know um that the skills that employers value largely in this okay that there'll be some specific vocational routes that you know, aerospace or something, I, I don't know, whatever it is, scientific routes, it may be different. But for those who need general human skills, um, mm. you often don't get that through the, the the sort of quite typically strained educational system that people are in. Um, yeah. you know, um, so on a, on, a, on a sort of side note to that, I'm interested in your view as to how you spot emerging HR talent, because I'm of the view that what it's the kind of formal route, the educational teach, you know, taught sort of qualifications of HR aren't, aren't an enormous amount of use. Um, so how, how do you spot the, the talent that you hire into your team? Because you've got a reasonable sized team. I mean, I think you said about 100 yeah. people or something yeah, in yeah, HR. 100, 100 um, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much a heretic when it comes to this. I'm not a formally trained HR person either myself. So I, I sort of came into this probably more through a business route and, um, a couple of things that matter to me is I actually am very interested by people who didn't start in, maybe I'm completely biased and only hiring my own image, which is obviously, you know, a terrible thing to do. Um, but look for people who haven't just worked in an HR or people function, because I think the rounded appreciation of ultimately where's the value being created in an organization where are the um where are the opportunity you know what's the customer base where are the opportunities how does the operation work 
Um, where are the risks? How do we mitigate them? You know, like how do you end up almost focusing? Because we as people, people, there's so many things you can do all the time. There's an, an, an infinite mm -hmm. list of things that could be better on all occasions. So what I'm sort of mantra I've had with my team for, for many years is like, right, let's look at the return on effort. Where do you put your focus? Because yes, of course, these hundred things are all useful. And of course, it'd be lovely if we did this different benefit. And of course, but actually, there's a finite pot of time, effort, resource, money, whatever. And also mm. your time. So how are you going to think about that? And I think the, the emerging talent on one dimension is those that are hyper curious about the business. Um, mm. Because I was also given a great piece of advice early on which is 50% of your discussion with your business, like if you're partnering someone in a business, should be about the business at least. Mm. So you, you, mm. you, you shouldn't be talking about specifically HRE stuff. Um, and I've always kind of held that quite dear. Um, mm. and, it, and it's borne out to be right. I think the other thing that I love in people um, that I've had the pleasure to work with over the years is people who take that curiosity into I'm going to try something new. So I'm happy to step into this slightly gray space of we think there's a business problem here. We're going to try and shape it. We're going to try and understand what it is. And we're going to use our interpersonal skills, our problem solving, our, our you know, bringing in experts, whatever needs to happen um, to get after it. And actually what that translates mm. as is are people willing to take a bit of a punt on, on, on their own career and their own next step? Um, I think those mm. who have quite, I need to get from manager to senior manager to dirt and what, on whatever that is in the narrow discipline of, of, of where they're focused, be it, I don't know, recruitment or L and D or something. Um, for me, that lack of breadth of thinking and lack of breadth of, of ambition broadly holds them back. Mm. Um, so that's another thing I look for is, is I guess a little bit of willingness to take a risk. Yeah. Controlled yeah. risk, right? Because it's not, yeah, controlled risk. Yeah. And so in, in your own career, would you say that you've had a moment like that, a lucky break or a big risk that you took or, or something that happened that was a sort of pivotal moment for you? Yeah, I think, I think two actually, um, well, there's probably many more than two, but I'll give, I'll give the first one was when I just, I said, I'll take a mat cover. Okay. I'll step into this sort of head of HR job for our telecoms business at Tesco, which was a, you know, it's not a small business. It was a sort of 140, 150 million profit business and three, three odd mm. thousand people. I had no clue what I was doing. Um, but I just believed in the people around me, felt that they would support me and I, and I took the plunge. Um, and that was mm. a huge learning and sort of stretch opportunity for me. So that, that was one. And the second one was I just got very curious about all development and uh, my boss at the time just sort of backed me and said, well, go and find out about it. And I went and did some development and, you know, some courses on it and sort of brought that thinking about broader org development rather than just structural design um, back into into Tesco. And, and um, that was a risk because it could have gone absolutely nowhere and I could have ended up in the corner as Billy No Mates with, with, without, you know, without anything to do. But yeah. I benefited from taking risk. And so therefore I kind of look at it in other people, I suppose. Don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes of the People People podcast. Being a chief people officer can be a bit of a lonely endeavour at times. So, and it's quite tough. You're you know you're carrying lots of people's secrets and 
confidences and all that kind of stuff it can be a bit of a burden at times so what, what do you do to look after yourself um sometimes well sometimes badly um i so i've always been pretty focused on trying to stay mind and body fit um because actually that decompressing of going for a run or, or whatever cycling or swimming i used to swim a lot um was mm. the thing that kept me on an even keel actually so um it sounds trite but um the very basic things of drink enough water get some sleep and actually take some exercise and eat well has a huge yeah. impact on the state you turn up to at work and i think you have to turn up in a positive um non-triggered state um because otherwise it's mm. very hard to end up in that sort of very hard to avoid ending ending up in a in a in a uh, you're not providing the best advice you can be if that's how you turn up so it's sort of a huge responsibility to show up well mm. um mm. because i you know people look to it um and we're possibly trying to do that um i think the other thing that i've learned over the years is being really clear on that fine line between the role of chief people officer and being people's line manager because that mm -hmm. gets blurry and I can, I can sort of see you nodding so i suspect that you you know what i'm i'm talking to it can get very blurry particularly in environments mm. where leaders don't naturally um play in the people leadership space so we often have many leaders who are technically amazing um, um but sometimes can have a little deficit in terms of how they lead their teams or the people around them and so I've probably got it wrong as many times as I've got it right, but not stepping into that that sort of people management mm. space is 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 a well, it's a perennial challenge actually. Yeah, it's a common theme. Yeah, the, the because you've got in HR, you have a lot of people, and a lot of them end up as CPOs who will take stuff on because well, no one else is going to do it. I'll get it done, and I'm interested, and I'm curious, and I, I can have a go at it. Mm. And then faced with a situation where a line manager is maybe a bit um, less keen on coming forward, it's just a natural tendency to go, oh, well, give it to me, then I'll sort it out. I'll just do it. And you kind of want to step in and go, well, no, this is how you should do it. And, and I'll, I'll, but you, it's, it's difficult. It's just like with kids, isn't it, really? If you take them across the road every day, then they never learn to do it for themselves. So you've got to let them cross the road for themselves. Exactly. And then if you layer in something like the pandemic or whatever we've been going through where pace mm -hmm. was at the top of the list right sometimes it was just it's mm. just bloody quicker to get on and do it yourself rather than to try and coach someone into the right answer um yeah so yeah. but but yeah so that that's um that's the ongoing uh and will i imagine for the rest of my living days remain one of the one of the things to keep an eye on yeah yeah so i know when we spoke um before you you were really passionate about sustainability the the challenges facing the planet the climate emergency Do, i sometimes i find it really difficult and sometimes i find it really easy to to kind of get my arms around that topic when i go to the supermarket and i buy a packet of bananas or whatever it is and it comes in a load of packaging mm -hmm. it's really easy to then sort of see and then sometimes i, I walk about in london and i think i see someone holding a coffee cup and i think there are literally hundreds of thousands of people walking around London right this second, each with a, cup, a coffee cup in their hand. No wonder we have a problem. Yeah. And then there are other times when people talk about net zero and and stuff like that. I, that I can't 
I can't get my arms around it. So how do you kind of reconcile all of that? How do you characterize the, the, the problem that we're facing as a planet and what sort of things do you think we should be doing? Well, leave the tiny question till the end, then, and that's, that's it. <laughs> Jesus. Um, so I, you know, for full disclosure, I'm at the quite activist end of the spectrum around this. I do know it in myself mm. and, and sort of happily sit on the activist end. Um, there are, you know, uh, a million data points that prove the climate is changing and that carbon is 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 um, increasingly sort of suffocating the world and, and heating it up. Um, and that is obviously big and impossible for an individual to get behind. However, I do believe that the, the, the sort of holy trinity between business, government and money um, has an opportunity to drive this change very, very quickly. Um, business through its day-to-day activities, government through policy and regulation or regulation primarily, um, and money as in where's the investment going and, and, and therefore ultimately how cheap or not is it for businesses that have a good social or planetary consciousness to access um, debt and funding. Um, so that, that um, happy triumvirate could and can work well together then the issues become manageable. You know, there's huge strides being made by organizations in anywhere from mining to automotive to 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 hospitality, one I you know, close to in retail, where businesses are taking a step beyond where government regulation is is it's not just, oh crap, we're gonna be in trouble because we're not delivering on this bit of law or whatever it is. And I think that's both dragging um, government thinking forward. Um, and I think some of the new, well, certainly if you look at the US, some of the attempts that are being made over there to to, to break out on this new green economy is gaining traction. And, and at a really simple practical example, five years ago, or maybe, yeah, maybe five years ago, would you have imagined that electric cars would be so, or will soon to be so dominant across UK streets. I mean, you just wouldn't have seen that maybe five, Mm. six years ago. So that change has happened very quickly. And I would just caveat, I know there are huge issues with electric cars and all the the mining that goes into the lithium and and the the, the cobalt and all that sort of stuff. But um, I think just going back to that is I'm seeing an increasing focus of uh financial institutions who are offering preferential loan agreements based on someone's um i guess broadly esg credibility um that will drive company yeah. behavior you've got legislation coming out thick and fast bit from europe or from um our government um which is moving this agenda but i think most importantly you've got businesses who are thinking about their consumer base and their social contribution you know i'll take it right back into to sort of the Nando's context, which is we ha- our target demographic is 16 to 24. Everyone mm-hmm. at that age cares about the planet and cares about our businesses, transparent and socially responsible. And what are they doing? Are they a sort of ruthless extractor of resources or are they sort of broadly trying to do their best in a difficult situation? So for any business mm-hmm. that has a customer, and that doesn't need to just be B2B, it could be B2C, what is the social contribution of that business and and and, and i'd recommend it to to you and to anyone actually there's an amazing book by a guy called alex edmonds who's a is a professor at london business school called grow the pie um and it is and there's been many sort of attempts on this but what is capitalism in the future and how does business contribute over and above 
just making profits for either a few number or, or many um, shareholders. And so it's a shift of the thinking mm. from shareholder value through to stakeholder value. Um, and it's a fantastic guide um, for that. So business can and will be a huge driving force, but um, yeah, it needs both of those three dimensions to do it. So I'm not sure if I really answered your question, but I, I have a lot of optimism that change is coming mm. and it's coming fast. Um, I guess one of the things I, I'm curious about is can businesses reinvent their economic model in order to adapt in time or does it require total disruption and, and, and market disruption um, for that to happen? And that, that for me is, is the really big question. Can, can businesses do what they need to do? Because the reason that businesses do what they do now or do, it in, or do stuff in an unsustainable way is typically because it's expedient. It's either cheap or efficient or whatever. It's just easier to whack out a load of plastic spoons than it is to spend money trying to find an alternative, yeah. for example. And so until businesses figure out how they can do it and still make money, a level of money that everyone's happy with, particularly the listed companies, then I think it's, it's really difficult because they just go down the path of least resistance in order to serve their, their shareholders, maybe rather than their stakeholders. But yeah. people are wising up. I mean, that's the good I, news. I, I think guess. so. But also if you look at anything, be it private equity or, or, or listed, if you know, the requirement is for long-term and shareholder value. If you are willfully, mm. and you're seeing the cases against some of the oil and gas majors now, if you're willfully destroying shareholder value by not being proactive in this space, then then that, you know, we're, we're seeing the impacts of that. I don't believe incremental change will do it, right? So I know that sounds a bit all a bit Armageddon-y, but I think, I think there's a lot of organizations mm. that will try and increment their way through to being a bit better. And, you know, your plastic spoons example is a great one. People might choose to use mm. starch-based sort of vegware, but then the reality is the vegware can only be decomposed or composted in one site in Scotland. It can't be disposed of in a normal anaerobic digester. So, um, you know, people, companies try and make positive steps, but actually maybe the infrastructure is not in place or they're concerned about consumer backlash of all oh, this is all just greenwashing. For, I yeah. believe that that is is a sort of comforting or comfortable excuse. Actually, this sort of oh, I'm worried if we do the wrong thing and the customers will accuse us of, of just greenwashing it. I think many people in many yeah. businesses are trying to do their best, um, and mm. we need that both as a sort of society, but also as a as a planet overall. Companies need to take the risk and step forward. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Well, there you go. Right. I think we should end on that note. That's, that, that. <laughs> haven't even haven't even had my coffee yet today, so that's uh, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a, yeah, good way to start the energy going. Well, th thank you so much for for talking uh, on the pod. Uh, it's been it's been really good, really good, and uh, I'll definitely get along to uh, Anando's and um, have a chicken sandwich or whatever it is that you do. <laughs> uh, well, I will take you through the range of the menu and don't worry, I'll, I'll even cover it for you. So don't worry, Barry, it's the offers there. Thanks for listening to the People People podcast with me, Barry Hoffman. See you next time. This podcast was sponsored by Strategic Dimensions. 